All right, welcome back to another episode of the Missed Information Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Ryan Havey. I'm John Tilden. And we are here to give you a hopefully unbiased glimpse into some of the news, notes, some of the, shall we say... The hot button issues. From the week, from the month, from the year, some of the things that have popped up through the news, through conversations that we've had with others, and things that we just want to talk through and talk about some of the information and misinformation around those issues. So start off, this is being recorded on October 3rd, 2020, and some of the news of the week, it has been a, a huge week, uh, John, before this podcast. We can't even believe, like, this is Saturday, and earlier this week, Trump's tax returns, to some extent, were some information on them were leaked by the New York Times. We went from that, which, if you haven't read it, read that article. At some point, we might dive into that, but it's a mess. Even more of a mess, or as CNN's Jake Tapper referred to it, a hot mess inside of a dumpster fire inside of a train wreck. The first debate happened on Tuesday night at 9 p.m., which was, I think, September 29th. And oh my gosh, if you watch that, I'm so sorry. And if you didn't watch that, please don't go back and watch it. I, I made it's the mistake of watching it sober. Yeah, I've seen boxing Honestly, matches that had better sportsmanship. Yeah, actually, I was sober too. Yeah, there were there were a couple of drinking games I saw floating around. I, I saw somebody post on Reddit, we decided we were going to drink with my roommates every time Trump talked over somebody or Biden looked at the camera, and we nearly died. And I, <laughs> I can only imagine what that would do to a human. It was bad. I mean, it was really bad from Trump's side. Biden wasn't great either. Like, it was just, it was, ugh. It was disgusting. It, it made me sad, to be honest. Yeah, we, we turned it off about an hour in. Like, we got enough to, like, get the the gist of it. And maybe at some point we'll talk about the Proud Boys. Everything that goes along with that. But I think I need some time to dive into that one a little bit. I'm going to get really riled up if we get into that. So just a heads up, that will not be an unbiased podcast. And I don't think it should be. Other news of the week. Trump has COVID. Um, which the other thing that happened this week? Like, holy crap, guys! Jeez, what a week! I will say, as much as I don't like his policies, his quote-unquote leadership style, his ethics, or really anything about him, I I don't wish bet death by coronavirus on him. I've seen some memes going around. I don't think that's that's necessarily right. From the people I know who have had it, it's a scary disease, and. I don't know. That's not the way to go. So here is something I've been mulling over since he was announced positive. And I think for me, it's kind of like the rules of any sporting event. So imagine a boxer or a basketball player who's just known for talking trash. All they do is smack talk. That's their thing. They just do it off the cuff 24-7. And then imagine like, that um, person getting... Alan Iverson. Exactly. Imagine Floyd Mayweather or Allen Iverson, and then imagine them turning around and crying foul when somebody trash talks them. And the way I've kind of encapsulated this and thought of this to myself is if, if you're the type of person who likes Trump but doesn't like what he does to our political discourse, if you admit the guy is flawed, the guy can't keep his mouth shut, I don't like what he says this, but I like some of his policies, and I think he's the better option than Biden, and you've actually been trying to make the 
political discourse in this country civil and better, you have every right to step up and say, don't mock the president getting COVID. Like, I will stand there with you and fight on that. That You have earned that. If, however, you're the type of person who's been calling this the China virus, was <laughs> applauding Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, and wants politics to be this sort of winner-takes-all team sport, and you've kind of been celebrating and egging the, the owning the libs and playing with your side and have not batted an eye every time Trump has insulted somebody. Pardon my French, but shut the hell up. Like, that's my thing. Like, if, like, my conservative friends and family who admit that Trump's rude and uncouth and have been trying to, like, make good civil arguments, I hear you. I get that. If you're only wanting civility now when you haven't given it, though, every time Trump's given it to someone else, that's kind of my problem. Like, it, and I know that that's a minority of the conservative side. I get that. But that's kind of where I am. Like, I'm totally willing to step aside and pass the olive branch for the people who've been doing the same. But I am going to point out the hypocrisy for people who want to own the libs and then also cry when Trump gets insulted. And it, I think it goes back, I mean, Trump hasn't died from it, at least not at the time of this recording. But when we talked about like RBG's death, we, at the time, we were really appreciative of the respect that we saw kind of across the board. And I think that because Trump is such a polarizing figure, like there, and I mean, he is the president and a polarizing figure. We've seen a lot of memes, a lot of jokes. It's something that on this podcast, like we're really trying to respect everybody on both sides. Like we're not trying to inside anything here so i guess with that all being said we'd like to continue to move forward with the rest of the episode and we've got some heavy hitting stuff today uh we've we've had some conversations between the two of us with some others and what really kind of lit the match for me on on this topic was when trump would throw around the word socialist at biden kind of throughout the debate this past week and i started thinking about like, what does that really mean? Like, why does that word stir up such a kind of a deep-seated response against that word socialism? And it seems to have been normalized a little bit by some of the younger generations, specifically millennials and Gen Z. Like, you hear about, like, AOC. You hear about, like, Bernie Sanders, who's a democratic socialist. And so John and I were chatting. We're like, what does that really mean? What has socialism meant in history? What has it meant for, for different countries that have implemented it? And in the United States, what does that mean for us if some of our politicians are leaning more towards socialism than some of the others necessarily holding power? So let's start with a historical definition. There's a lot of theory and a lot of different things that play into this. So when we were doing our, our research, we were noticing there's a lot of economic theory, a lot of political theory, theory, some philosophy, a lot of history, and we'll go into that. But the one sentence definition of socialism is government or working class ownership of the means of production of providing goods and services. The heart of it is the idea that having capital, owning a business, a service, or some way of providing a good and service is a great wealth generator and that working people and or the government need to have some sort of ownership in what that is. 
Something that I think is also worth pointing out here is that Marxism is not the only form of socialism. Socialism kind of emerged prior to Marx writing the Communist Manifesto in 1848. But to kind of truncate it, Marxism, all Marxists are socialists, not all socialists are Marxists. And I think that's important. And once we get into Marxism, we can talk about how all Leninists are Marxists, but not all Marxists are Leninists and what that means. But I think that's kind of a key point here is that we're talking about a really, really broad style of government and economic organization. And it just means so many different things. So we can't possibly cover it all here, right? Like the national tie-in with Sinn Féin in Ireland and what that means is very different from the Bolsheviks in Russia, which is very different from trade unions in Argentina, which is very different from nationalized healthcare in Canada. So there's, there's a lot to cover here and we cannot cover it all. So we'll throw some books, some resources, some right directions for people to go to but suffice to say like there are people who wrote their theses on three works that Lenin wrote in one year we can't cover it all and i mean we we try to keep this an hour or less so if we really want to dive into any one of those those examples we'd probably need at least 20 30 minutes to really talk it through and it really depends on how much wine john has drank kind of ahead of that as well yeah that's that's fair at some point we'll go through a bottle of malbec and i'll talk about the russian revolution but i don't think it's tonight so yeah like i think that's also a good tie-in into i think one of the key points with socialism is that socialism and socialist ideology of which there's a hundred different types with a hundred different philosophers and a hundred different contexts really arose out of the Industrial Revolution in Western Europe, where people moved into urban areas to work in factory jobs from farmlands, worked extremely grueling hours for low pay in extremely bad living situations and working situations, lived in cities where prostitution, crime, and drinking were rampant, where hanging was a key punishment for basically anything because there, there were no cops and no jails. And the humane option was getting shipped to Australia <laughs> if you were urban poor in Britain around the 1780s, 1790s. So there were Wait, some... Were those the were those the prisoners and the felons that were shipped to Australia to be there for... There's a really good book called The Fatal Shore about the history of Australia and the transport system that talks a lot about this fear a lot of the British upper crust had of this new working urban poor that was emerging during the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and how there were no jails, there were no cops. Cops didn't really emerge until the 1830s in Britain. So hanging was very, very common. So yeah, the, the transport system kind of emerged as this humane option for the, the unreformable urban poor. Fun fact, uh, prostitution was not a transportable crime. I know it's typically referred to as one, but... The vast majority, they were not either Irish politicals or prostitutes. The vast majority were pickpockets, thieves, people who got, who got in bar fights, things like that. Oh, not even like real crime. No, exactly. It was basically like, it was the humane option, which is kind of messed up to say, but it was basically the idea that they shouldn't hang for this, but you know, if they're a repeat offender, they shouldn't stay here. 
Anyway, I digress. That, but essentially, there were a lot of problems in this huge economic shift as people left the farms of Britain, France, and the Netherlands and moved into the cities and lived in horrible, squalid conditions and worked for next to nothing. So socialism kind of emerges as this idea of there needs to be some sort of better representation and some sort of better working conditions and living conditions and pay. And this idea of the ownership of means of productions or a society where there is no class and there is no difference in status emerges. And I think going off of that, it's also worth pointing out that Ryan and I are pretty, you know, white middle class guys. We're not going to see any Viet Cong flags from us or any praise given to the far left. But I think it's worth pointing out that we're not pro-Castro, we're not pro-Stalin. Like We can, can talk at length about the flaws of those people and the historical contexts behind that. Stalin killed more people than Hitler, and I feel like Hitler gets way more press. I think the, the rebuttal to that I've heard is that Hitler also ran up a pretty high tally in like half the amount of time, which is fair. But yeah, that, that statement's true. Okay. So I, I think it's worth pointing out that like we're, we're not going to you know, apologize for the Soviets or Cuba no. on this podcast. I think it's worth pointing out, though, if you're going to criticize Canada and New Zealand as being on the slippery slope to like the, the Stalinist gulags, then you kind of need to do the same thing with capitalism, right? The United Fruit Company helped organize coups in Latin America in the 20th century uh, and massacred striking workers and literally ran entire countries. And you never hear people say that like more deregulation is going to make us become a situation like that. I don't think I've ever heard of the United Fruit Company before. I would highly recommend people look into that. Fun fact, they're actually Chiquita Banana now. Oh, okay. Well, I'll add that to the list of brands that I don't buy, which I think is pretty much just Chiquita Banana. But what did they do? This history is also really, really complex. But essentially, the United Fruit Company at the tail end of the 20th century and the beginning part of the 20th century started organizing banana production on these large plantations throughout what's now Colombia and Central America. Again, pardon my French, they didn't give two shits. They, there were no unions, there was no sense of equal working conditions at all. There was so much bribery of the government that they could do exactly whatever they wanted. Uh, by 1930, they were the largest employer in Central America. They owned something like 3.5 million acres across the entirety of Central America. And at, at one point, they had the largest private naval fleet in the world. This company had a private naval fleet? Yeah, the British East India Company also at one point had its own army. Um, and we might do a podcast about that. But yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that th this company basically bribed every politician in Latin America and then also hired mercenary death squads to enforce production quotas. They organized a coup in Honduras in 1911, and we'll link sources in the show notes. The U.S. government also helped intervene in Central America in the early part of the 20th century a couple different times to help the United Fruit Company. They're 
infamous for a banana massacre in Colombia. Point being, though, like every time that somebody wants to make a slight deregulation, we don't come out and say, well, here's the worst example of capitalism, right? Like this is what's going to happen if we lower taxes 1%. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that makes sense. And obviously, we just dove into the worst example of capitalism for a, a couple of minutes here without really diving into some of the like worst examples of socialism, which oftentimes go hand in hand and can often be confused. I mean, I think, John, you've probably got the historical background kind of on lock. What about Cuba or the Soviet Union or Venezuela or some of these examples? So if you're pro-Soviet Union, you need to do some more reading on the history of the Soviet Union. Oh, I don't think anybody's pro-Soviet Union. There's there's a couple of people out there. They're, they exist. Um, it's There aren't that many of them, but I've definitely seen people who are definitely pro-communist. And I don't even know if there's so much pro-communist as anti-capitalist. But the, the long story short here is the Russian Empire was a disaster around 1900. It got itself into World War I. The situation worsened. The Tsar was overthrown. And this kind of mixture government of liberals and socialists that stepped up to fill the void ended up getting overthrown by Lenin and the Bolshevik Party in October of 1917. Lenin has an assassination attempt made on his life. Yep, Fanny Kaplan shot Lenin in August of 1918 and really kicks off this period known as the Red Terror, which is basically this kind of like mass campaign to eradicate enemies of the revolution due to Lenin's paranoia. It, it's it's some really terrifying stuff, to be honest. Like, there's a story about these white cadets who surrendered during the Civil War, who then were taken to a, a furnace and thrown in one at a time in a factory by the Reds. The Cheka was the, the Bolshevik secret police who had this just different ways per each city like each police force in each city had its own brand on messed up torture techniques like Kharkov in western Russia was known for the Kharkov glove where people would have their hands shoved repeatedly into boiling water until like the flesh was peeling off so needless to say like we're not you know pro leninists on this podcast to to put it mildly and, and that's not even talking about like Stalin and the gulags which is the, the Siberian system of political prisoner camps in the far east and center of Russia. And I think it's worth pointing out, though, that like there was this, this shift for a lot of Western European and North American socialists and leftists to kind of view the Soviet Union as this really noble experiment that Stalin corrupted. I, I don't think that's true in my understanding of the history. I think that the system that collapsed in 1917 in the Russian Empire was so just absolutely messed up top to core that a lot of violence started emerging on multiple sides. I mean, it is also worth pointing out that the whites are basically, you know, proto-fascists and killed a lot of Russian Jews during the Civil War. But that doesn't excuse what uh, the Bolsheviks did. So we're looking at at least 10,000 people killed during the Red Terror at the initial executions. And real quick, like I feel like a really good, easy-to-read kind of metaphorical example of this is uh, Orwell's Animal Farm. It's interesting you bring that one up. I think it's 
it's too dismissive of Lenin and Trotsky. If someone wants to send me the source, but my understanding of it is like they were definitely okay with a lot of widespread violence from the start. I mean, Stalin was probably worse, but I don't think it excuses them. But definitely go read the book because it is an interesting book. Also, shameless plug here, Hoopla is an app that if you have a library card to your local library, you can get free audiobooks. I think it's six or eight a month. And you can download those, listen to them. And I'm not sure if Animal Farm is on there or not, but it's a great source for getting just some free audio content that's that's not us if you're looking for some differentiation. That's a good plug. Uh, I would also add a people's tragedy if you want some further resources on the Russian Revolution, because that's one of my all-time favorite books. So all this to say, like, it's estimated that somewhere between 12,000 and 100,000 people died during the Red Terror. It's estimated it might be a lot more than that, but I think under 100,000 is the agreed upon range. So we're, we're not condoning the Soviet Union or, or communism, but I think that in the U.S. context, a lot of the things that we are told are communism or socialism aren't, right? Like the Nordic models of countries like Sweden and Norway. There's definitely a lot more membership in labor unions. There's definitely a lot more state-owned enterprises. There's better social nets. Canada has nationalized health care and more membership in labor unions than the U.S. Australia and New Zealand would fall in that camp as well. But I don't consider any of those socialist countries. Right? They still respond to market forces. Most people have private employers. There might be you know, more participation in labor unions. There might be more government regulation about how you can pay an employee and things like that. But I don't consider that anywhere near as socialist as a country like the USSR. That makes a lot of sense. I see socialism and capitalism as, as more of a spectrum. Like on one side, you have socialism, where if you're 100% socialist, like all of the power is really consolidated on the government side. And that's where all the people kind of get all their resources from, whether that's healthcare or education, salary. And anytime you consolidate power, you're going to have bad apples rise to the top. And bad apples can't just be picked and thrown away necessarily. These bad apples are more like in the roots of the tree itself. Because if you don't have other agencies kind of pulling in from different areas to offset those bad people, that consolidation of power can get pretty nasty. But then again, on the other hand, you've got capitalism on the folds. And if you go fully towards that capitalism, you get the banana republic model, like John was talking about with the United Fruit Company, owning pretty much all of, well, I don't know about all of South America, but a good chunk of South America with the way that they had their own naval fleet and could bribe government officials to do whatever they wanted. Basically, either way, you don't want 100% in one direction versus the other. Yeah, I think your your spectrum point makes a lot of sense, right? Like, because public schools, I suppose that's a form of socialism. The government is organizing a resource, and I think there is a public benefit there. Public libraries, same thing. Public police forces. I mean, the UK didn't start getting police forces until the 1830s, really. Like, the reason cops in the UK are called Bobbies is because they're named after Prime Minister Robert Peel, who started reforming the justice system in the 1830s. So I think the point here is that things like the five-day week 
for work, the eight-hour workday, having a set amount of vacation time that you are granted in a year, having a public police force, having a public school system, those did not always exist. Would you say federal holidays would be included in that too? Oh, I mean, Labor Day is a prime example of something that's considered socialist, right? Like, it's May Day in the rest of the world, and it's not in the U.S., and I'm pretty sure most of that's because of the Haymarket riot. Yeah, it's International Workers' Day across the rest of the world. So I think it's worth pointing out that, like, it was socialists. I don't even know if socialist is the term, or at the very least, it was the labor movement that got us 40 hours a week and a five-day week and some semblance of vacation time. That was not the norm before the 1910s, 1920s in this country. Every sort of environmental regulation we've had, every sort of safety regulation we've had is some sort of socialism in a sense. I think a key distinction here is like revolution versus reform. The Bolsheviks of the Russian Empire were very set on this violent revolution that capitalism would give way to this transitionary state of socialism, which would lead to full-on communism, and that a violent revolution to overthrow the system was inevitable. And I think the key difference between countries like the UK, Ireland, France, Spain, Canada, Australia, is this kind of like social democracy angle that the system needs to be reformed, that we can better working conditions, we can better the amount of paid time off, uh, we can better the amount of maternity leave without overthrowing the system. And I think that's kind of the key distinction between like a social democracy like Canada or Sweden and full-on Marxist country like the USSR. So real quick, just so everybody's on the same page here, the official definition of democratic socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So pretty much saying that people like me and John, who are not the heads of our company, we don't have any sort of like real power in any, in any kind of way, but we still get a say in what's going on in the production of goods, in the distribution of those goods. We get to benefit from that production and distribution, just like everybody else, and just like the head of the company, and just like all these other people in power. So that's kind of the the theory behind that. I think what that definition is trying to say. Now, capitalism, on the other hand, says, hey, if you're the one who made it to the top, like you're the one who gets the most cheese, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, especially we talk about most businesses in the United States are considered small businesses, maybe medium-sized businesses. And if you've got a small business, then yeah, if you're the owner and you've got, let's say, 10 to 20 employees, like you're going to pay them well. But at the end of the day, like you're the one who started this up, you're moving it forward, you're reaping the benefits of it. It's kind of a gray area here because maybe if you get to a certain size, you start to think, is there such a thing as making too much money? And you hear a lot of people, at least recently, talking about people who are billionaires like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Zuckerberg um, running some of the largest tech companies like in the country and in the world that basically these companies, if they were a country, their GDP would be just off the charts. There's some kind of spinning around of like, hey, once you make a certain amount, like maybe we just say 
you've won capitalism and anything after a billion dollars like you get taxed on which i can't even fathom what a billion dollars means so i i will say that i'm against the wealth tax just because a lot of that is stock value it's not actually liquid by liquid you mean like actual cash on hand that you can you can use on a day-to-day basis right exactly nobody's getting paid a billion dollars uh so much as they own companies and assets that might be worth x amount but i think that that's another key distinction though right like the difference between like i don't support a wealth tax that's the difference between like a liberal and a leftist and i think that like when it comes to the democratic party in the u.s i think there are elements of the party that hedges towards maybe not like a full-blown socialism but a social democracy becoming you know a little bit more like canada or new zealand or denmark but i don't think that encapsulates the party at large though right like joe biden is the nominee this year yeah he's super moderate when it comes to like some of the far left democrats you look at the the field that was running for president and you see people like bernie sanders who's a self-proclaimed democratic socialist he subscribes to the political philosophy that although he supports democracy he leans more towards a socially owned economy and that has a particular emphasis on workplace democracy the workers are self-managed and kind of a, a market socialist economy of some way shape or form which basically means you've got more of a government controlled economy there's not as much room for businesses to make their own kind of decisions throughout that and there's a lot more government regulation not saying that all government regulation is bad but anything in excess is bad. I believe it was Ben Franklin who said, uh, everything in moderation, including moderation. And that goes for government regulation, and that also goes for the deregulation. You have to have some level of balance kind of among all those. And at least from what I've read of Joe Biden's platform and the policies that he's pushing and the things that he's said, uh, he definitely seems to be more in the moderate camp than he would be in the far left liberal towards like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or AOC in more of the democratic socialist side. Like I, I love my dad, but like he's called Hillary Clinton a communist before. And I've had to say like Hillary's not advocating we overthrow the system and guillotine senators. Like she's not calling for redistribution of land. She's not a communist. She She's a liberal. And I think that's kind of like my take on the Democratic Party at the moment. I think that there is a big leftist wing in the party. And I think in the next 15, 20 years, we'll see a kind of coalescing of like moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats into a, I don't want to say like maybe social democracy or maybe just a liberal party. And then we'll start to see like a, a Democratic Socialist Party emerge. More of your Bernie Sanders, your AOCs. And your Elizabeth Warrens. But I, I think the spectrum analogy makes a lot of sense. You heard it here first, folks. John Tilden called it out. Next few years, there's going to be an official Democratic Socialist Party. And uh, it's going to be splitting to the left. So wait and see for that prophecy to play out. Real quick, John, wanted to talk through kind of this claim that has been floating around as well, that Nazis are socialists. And, and I've heard this this term Nazi. Obviously, we know what the historical meaning is, but... We've heard people on the right be called Nazis. We've heard people on the left be called Nazis. We've heard Nazis are called socialists. What is your take on this? So this one gets me. It's 
I think a little disingenuous because it's typically posited as the Nazis are leftists when I think the the more accurate claim is the Nazis have a lot of differences between what they believe and the modern day Republican Party. So what I mean by that is, okay, so one, Nazi does stand for National Socialist. For instance, like the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea is the official name of North Korea. That doesn't inherently make it so. It's also worth pointing out the Nazis were extremely anti-communist. Like one of the reasons they were so anti-Semitic is that they believed Jews caused the Russian Revolution. They were extremely anti-Semitic. They were extremely anti-communist. They banned the Communist Party in Nazi Germany. There was a scandal recently about how Antifa wears, I think it's the Red Triangle, that was what Nazi leftist political prisoners were assigned in the death camps. And Trump got in trouble for running a Facebook ad where he was using that imagery about Antifa. But yeah, Antifa is basically wearing that red triangle to signify that they're the type of leftist that the Nazis would have put in in the camps. So the Nazis definitely did allow some sort of government ownership and regulation in the economy. But it's worth pointing out that like the the communist cry about the time was workers of the world unite. Like it was not a nationalist thing at all. The idea was that there would be a revolution in Russia and then they'd work to foment revolutions in Poland and Ukraine and Germany. And then eventually there would be this international communism. That was the the term uh, Lenin and Trotsky used. And that's not the Nazis at all. If there was socialism with the Nazi party, it was confined to like white Aryans getting decent paying jobs. The Nazis also suppressed trade unions. They also had this kind of weird relationship with religion as opposed to communism, which was extremely atheistic and anti-religious. The Nazis were fairly okay with Christianity as long as it tied into their nationalism. I mean, like, the Catholic Church was a huge part of fascism in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, and the famous painting Guernica is a painting of the Nazis helping the Francoists bomb a Basque village in northern Spain. So I think the distinction between like a relatively religious Nazi Germany and a completely atheistic communist Russia is worth pointing out too. And then there's also this homophobic and transphobic history of the Nazis. Like I'm not saying that it's impossible for socialists to be homophobic or transphobic, but I think it's worth pointing out that they're not liberal because of that. I think that the leftist argument doesn't really hold up. It definitely seems like on the spectrum, if this is the right spectrum to be on, but if you've got, you know, socialism slash communism slash leftists, liberal, whatever you want to put on one side, on the other side is is more nationalist fascism. That more of a an accurate definition of Nazis? It's worth pointing out that like fascism kind of emerged as this middle ground. I mean, it's not middle ground, but at, at the very least a different alternative between like the liberal capitalist democracies and communism. That there was this ground where you could blend some sort of socialism into the economy to a point. I mean, the Nazis did definitely court capital and work with business owners pretty closely at times. But this other route that you would take, you know, some of the ideas that socialism had had about control within the economy, but you weren't going to be interested in the betterment of workers around the world. It was only for men within the in-group. 
within a certain country. There is a certain amount of a little bit of socialism, I think, but I, I don't consider them leftists at all. The anti-communism, it was just such a big part of Hitler's plan that the Soviet Union needed to go. But it's so funny because there are some similarities in his leadership style. The Nazis were primarily a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, Adolf Hitler. And you see Stalinist Russia or the Soviet Union, and they were a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader. And you see both of those phrases in both the definitions of fascism and the you know super far left communism. And so it goes back to that whole spectrum example of if you've got either thing in an extreme, you're going to have some issues. You're going to have poor leadership. You're going to have people in power who probably shouldn't be in power. They're experiencing massive amounts of greed and they want to hold on to that power as much as they can and inflicting their most of the time very harmful beliefs on the people that they're supposed to be leading. And when that comes to the overall definition of leadership, it's a pretty bad definition of it. Yeah, I I think it's worth pointing out that like fascism and communism are definitely the worst possible representations. And I I think that's a kind of a a key point. I, I think for me, as far as like politics in the US, the fact that there were a lot further left candidates than Joe Biden suggests that he's not a socialist. And even Bernie Sanders, I mean, compared to Lenin or Stalin or Trotsky, that guy's a pushover. Like he's he's not a communist by the Soviet definition. The fact that he believes in democracy at all is a big difference. Right. He just sees that socialism is a means to kind of push some of his ideas and policies forward. So diving into a little bit more about socialism being kind of a dirty word. Like I've been thinking a lot about this kind of over the course of the past week after seeing that debate. I feel like you know you see a a pretty big generational shift between Gen Z and millennials to Gen X and baby boomers, where socialism has a positive to a negative connotation between those kind of two splits. And I feel like the gap is specifically between millennials and Gen X with overlap in in either way. And there are examples of people like in each group who believe differently than, than the generalities that I'm stating here. But in general, Gen X and baby boomers grew up and experienced the Cold War firsthand. And during that time period, Americans were taught that socialism and communism, like those were the worst things that a country could be, that people could be, and that at the end of the day, that was the true enemy to the American dream. And if you wanted to stomp out capitalism, stomp out free markets, stomp out the capability of an individual to pursue their dreams to their fullest extent socialism and communism that was the way to go and i think that a lot of that has continued into today even 20 to 30 years later you had presidents like like reagan who was a very anti-socialist president which makes sense or the time of history and what he was looking to push forward like he had very free market kind of policies and a free market mentality mentality that that pushed more towards capitalism and and that's not a not a bad thing but i think that 
you can go too far in the opposite direction by saying that, hey, if you have any sort of socialism, any semblance of that in your modern day policies, that's a slippery slope and you're going to be diving towards communism sooner than you think. And I think that's one of those those logical fallacies that are a potential to slip into. Yeah, I, I think that scale matters, right? Like nobody would say there should be no environmental regulations or consumer protections at all in a capitalist system. And I don't think that anyone except the the farthest left are claiming that the government should be involved in every facet of the economy. Right. So the Democratic Party is most often accused of being socialist. At the end of the day, John, are they? I, I don't think so. Biden doesn't support Medicare for all. He's probably okay with raising taxes, but he definitely doesn't want a wealth tax or any sort of worker ownership in companies or mandated labor unionship. And even like mandated labor unionship is like, yes, that's like a pretty left-wing policy in the U.S., but that's not communism. Like Lenin and Stalin would view reliance on labor unions as detrimental to workers and that they should really be running the show instead of just trying to use unions. So even that isn't communism. I think that there's a relatively moderate social democrat or democratic socialist wing of the Democratic Party, but I think it's just that a wing. I don't think it's the ticket this year. Yeah, kind of like how the Tea Party is a wing of the Republican Party. For the most part, not everybody's that far right. And again, I keep going back to like other countries, like Canada is the 20th largest economy in the world. They're apparently socialist to some people, but I don't think that holds up. They're a pretty free market economy for the most part. Like they're not as deregulated as we are in a lot of, in private as we are, but they're a pretty market oriented economy. We've talked about Canada, like at nauseum in our American exceptionalism episode, episode one. We're big fans. Yeah. Uh, so I I think that like you know there's there's pros and cons like I've I've seen some stats that you get more disposable income within the U.S. model across the board, but you get a lot more security and social mobility in the Canadian system. So I mean pros and cons, but I don't think the Canadian model is socialist. So we've covered a lot today. <laughs> there's a lot more to cover too. We've we've only scratched the surface. And if you have questions, which I'm sure you do please feel free to reach out to John and myself. The best way to get a hold of us is through Instagram at missed underscore information 2020 and send us a DM, tag us in your stories, do whatever you think is the best way to communicate with us through there. If you know either of us personally, obviously feel free to reach out in that regard as well. And we'd be happy to kind of talk through and do a deeper dive because I feel like there's a few topics that we touched on here that probably could warrant a full-length episode in themselves. People have written books about Marxist theory over the course of a decade. I mean, there's a lot to dive into here, and we can point you in the right direction, but do not take this as the comprehensive run-through. Absolutely. This is, if anything, a starting point to much deeper research. So as always, we encourage you to have conversations with people who, who think differently than you, and specifically dive into the nuance of those conversations, because... It's going to make you understand better all the people around you, find areas that you agree with, and overall, it's just going to make you a better person. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.